All right, guys. Genesis chapter 34. I actually want to back up just a couple verses. Go ahead and open up your Bibles. Follow along with me. Remember when Moses is writing Genesis, he didn't type a big 34, right? He didn't put these breaks in here. So I want to start, I want to show you guys where I started and what, what first intrigued me with this text. Starting in 3318, it says, And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padma Ram and camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. I find these verses to be almost ironic, actually foreboding. Because what does it say? It says that Jacob arrived there safely in Shechem. And it makes me want to scream into the story, Jacob, no, don't stop in Shechem. That's not where God told you to go and you are by no means safe. No, Jacob, don't make a deal with Hamor. He is not the kind of man that you want to shake hands with. Don't do it, Jacob. Don't set up camp there. Keep moving towards Bethel. I feel a sense of foreboding as our story opens because here's what happens in Shechem, starting in 34.1. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor saying, get me this girl for my wife. Right away, ladies, I'm inviting you to see the power dynamic. The text is laying out a very clear power dynamic. It's obvious. See, here we have Dinah. She is the youngest of a family of boys. Guys, some commentators have her as young as 10 years old. She is the youngest of who? Leah, a woman who was already vulnerable, already unseen, already an outcast. We are supposed to understand this about Dinah. She is the least of these. She is vulnerable. She's new to town. And so what is she doing? I mean, Moses leaves no room for confusion. She is going out to see the women of the land. She wants friends, she wants sister figures. So right away, we are being invited to see the reality of this situation. Is this one of those times where Dinah asked for it? Absolutely not. Is this confusing about maybe Dinah was in the wrong place at the wrong time? Dinah should have known better. She should have seen what was coming. No, it's the black and white grade for Dinah's situation of who is to blame. I don't think so. I think Moses is making that really clear to us. That's Dinah. This is about the powerful preying on the vulnerable. What do we see about Shechem? What does the text tell us? It says that he is a prince. Right away, we should understand he has power. And we should see this contrast between these two characters. He has power. It says that he seized her. He laid with her. He humiliated her. Guys, this means that he raped her. It does not mean that there was a flirtatious touch of the arm or that he stole a kiss or even that he groped her. Guys, it is clear what has happened here. He humiliates her. 
What do we see about Shechem? I mean, in some ways, he actually reminded me of, of Esau. He's erratic, and he is just consumed by his hunger for something. He's demanding, and he holds a lot of power. Then Jacob hears about it. He hears about it. Don't you wonder, well, maybe he should be confused of why his young daughter did not return home. But what do we read that he does? He sits tight. He's passive. He's reticent. He is inactive. Guys, the excuse he uses for holding his peace is that his sons are away in the field. Culturally, that makes no sense. He is the alpha male in this family. And he is sitting at home because his sons are away in the field. It reminds me of the Jacob we were first introduced to chapters ago. He was kind of described as this homebody, as a mama's boy, staying close to Rebecca while Esau was out hunting game. That's the Jacob we see in chapter 34. But then the brothers come, right? It says, Jacob heard that he had that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were in the livestock with the field, so Jacob held his peace. And Hamer, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it. And so maybe we start to feel like, like some relief coming, like, okay, the rescuers are coming. Men of action, here they are. It says that they were indignant, that they were very angry because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. It's like, here it comes. Here comes justice for Dinah. Here comes the rescue. Here are men who are being moved by mercy, who want justice for their little sister. But they get there and the text kind of paints the scene where kind of everyone almost seems to be coming to Jacob's tent at the same time. And so we have Hamor and we have Shechem and they're coming and they've got like this package deal. They have their solution to bring to Jacob and his family. And Jacob's sons come and you've got Simeon and Levi's who we kind of focus in on for the rest of the story. And you see uh, Hamor coming and, and does he start with an apology? Do we ever hear Hamor talk about his son's guilt? No. He never, ever acknowledges that anything wrong has happened. What conclusions should we be making about the people of Shechem? They sound a lot like the people of Sodom. Okay? Here he is, and he has a solution to the problem. We will make relationship with you, and we will buy... Dinah as the wife. Why? He totally justifies his son. He loves her. What a perverted version of love. He loves her. He wants her. He justifies his son. He sweetens the deal by talking about land and dwellings, trading and properties. Shechem is there too. We kind of hear him just speaking in overstatements. What we are invited to see about Shechem is that he believes as long as he's willing to pay a bride price, his offense is covered. So there's our characters. Who have we not heard from? Dinah. We have not heard a thing about Dinah. We don't hear how she's doing. We don't hear what she's going through. She's not even mentioned. The story could stop here, guys. I feel like there's enough depravity to call it good, right? The story could end here and we would feel like that's bad enough. There's enough despair. There's enough discouragement. But instead, it keeps going. The brothers who are indignant, who are angry, 
What do they do? It says in verse 13, the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Deceitfully. Where'd they learn that? A little nod to generational sin. They decide to deceive the men of Shechem and make this deal. They say, you gotta be circumcised and then we'll agree to your plan. And in your homework, you were asked the question, why was this so wrong? What they did with this trick with, with the circumcision. And it was, a good, it was a good thing to think about. Guys, remember what we learned about it. Circumcision was a sign given by God, right? This is a God-given sign. It was an outer expression of an inward condition that these people were to be set apart, distinct from the rest of the world. This sign of circumcision was all about purity. It was a reminder that there was a promise from God that a people, that nations, that a king would come from them. It was intimate, but it was public, but it was sacred. It was a sacred sign given by God. And now Simeon and Levi are giving it to the people of Shechem. It's a hint of what is going on here. They use it in a manipulative way for their own means. So the brothers deceive them, Shechem. We start to notice his power again because he convinces the whole city, all the men in the city to be circumcised. Then on three days when they're horribly swollen, they get attacked. The brothers of Dinah seek what we wish to be justice, but we soon find to be revenge. Okay, it's important for us to understand that they do not seek justice, but they seek revenge. Guys, they are so mad that their sister has fallen prey to a man of power that they make prey of an entire city. Do you see the irony there? The men of Shechem, when they were, the men of Shechem, you got to think of this, they were seemingly innocent of this rape, right? This is the sin of one man. And Simeon and Levi come and they kill all the men, the seemingly innocent men, the men who were vulnerable and unable to defend themselves are attacked by Simeon and Levi. They come against the city and Moses wants you to really understand that they kill all the men. And then they don't stop there, but they plunder the city, which includes taking the wives and the children. One of the translations says the wives and the little ones. Do you see a disgusting irony right here? What are they so mad about? And what do they do in response to it? They take the wives and the little ones who have just seen their dad and their brothers and their uncles fall to the sword of Simeon and Levi and take them as captives. Ladies, is this justice? We read that Dinah is rescued. And that's pretty much all we hear about her. It says that she's returned home. And guys, this is where I so hope that she did not hear her brother, her, her dad say to her brothers, you have brought trouble on me. You have made me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. I shall be destroyed. Guys, who's the victim? 
Jacob has made himself the victim of the situation and it is disgusting. What do we do with the story, guys? How do we process this kind of story in the middle of the first book of our Bible? This book that we say all the time, this is a story about God. What do we do when we find a story that is so full of violence and selfishness and evil and darkness? So many people in this study have told me that they have found Genesis to be incredibly disturbing at times. And if that is true of you this week and any other week, I will validate you and say that is appropriate. There are times, let me tell you again, that that is what Moses is trying to get out of you. You should be appalled. You should be confused. So this story, this chapter, 34, guys, it has left me wanting a couple things for Dinah. Justice is, is the first thing that comes to my mind. I want justice for her, don't you? It also leaves me wanting a better father for her. It leaves me wanting a, some better brothers for her. A brother and a father who have an eye for the abused or an eye for the underdog. A brother and a father who seek justice and execute justice so that the weak among, among them could live in safety. This story, guys, left me wishing that the people of God would have traveled on nearer to the city of God. As you guys saw this week in your homework, the name of God is not mentioned in chapter 34. Isn't that intriguing? God is not mentioned. No ink is spilled describing for us the thoughts of God, the role of God, the response of God in chapter 34. So my question is, is this a godless chapter? Absolutely. Ladies, let the silence of God in chapter 34 speak volumes to you. Let the conclusion be loud and clear to you that God will not condone abuse. God will not ever justify preying on the vulnerable or on the least of these. He will not associate himself with haughty men and women who take advantage of his children. His silence, ladies, it is more than intentional here. It is imperative for us to take note of. When you are reading a chapter or a story or even a book in the Bible that doesn't mention God or that pushes God to the margin, guys, it is those stories that you are reading that show us what happens when man takes the place of God. When man is acting like he is God. That is when we find a story that does not mention him. And do we not see that in this story? Do we not see little nods to that when we see Shechem demanding whatever he wants, demanding his rights, even when we see Simeon and Levi giving the gift of circumcision as if they are God? Show me a story in the Bible that does not mention God and I will show you a story where man has assumed the role of God. And guys, we do that, don't we? That's in us. We have no right assuming the throne of God. Eve had no right trying to be like God. 
we are not like him. But our hope and our good news in this chapter is actually that God is unlike man. God is unlike man. God is the better father. God is the better father that we are looking for for Dinah. God would not stay home, so to speak, when his people were suffering. In Exodus 2, here's the people of God who are in slavery, who are suffering. And we read at the end of chapter 2, during those many days, the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham and God with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew and God would do something about it, right? You know that story. God would do something about it. He would send Moses to deliver his people. But on the bigger scale, the bigger story, we see God as the better father doing something about the suffering of his people. He would send a better brother. Because God has heard and because God remembered and knew, he sent Jesus, the better brother, our firstborn, as we saw in Colossians. He sent him to enact justice, not revenge. He saw our suffering. He saw the evil of the world. And guys, he even saw the evil in our own hearts. And rather than being indignant and very angry, he was moved in compassion. And in the most upside down of ways, he brought justice. He obtained justice when he took our punishment upon himself when he hung on that cross. And in contrast to Shechem's way of thinking, guys, Jesus was willing to pay the ultimate bride price. And because of that, our offense was covered. The suffering in Dinah's life points us forward to the promise for an eternally better father and an eternally better brother. God, the Godhead is not like man, and that is our hope in this story, guys. Let the silence of God in this chapter move you. Our God is a father to the fatherless and a just judge to the least of these. He is very unlike man, and that is really good news for us. As we move into chapter 35, we hear this weak response from Jacob. Jacob's final words in chapter 34 to his sons, they are just packed with fear, aren't they? We just hear them being so egocentric. It's all about him and he's the victim, but it's full of fear. And I notice his words there, it's like there's no God in his mind. His words there would work for an atheist. If J it's almost like Jacob is not remembering God at all, much less his promises or his covenant. He's not remembering who his father was. He's not remembering the stories of his grandfather. He is just full of fear. He has completely forgotten this I will, this I will, this I will. He's worried about his safety. He's worried about his numbers. He's worried about his land. We're like, what were the promises to Abraham, Jacob? Abraham received this promise for land and for people, nations of people, royalty would come from you. 
He even specifically told him, I will be your shield and your reward. Don't you wish we could reach into the pages and shake Jacob and remind him of the promises that have been given to him. All of these promises have now just gotten twisted and become these fears. And this instructed me, guys. This is where this really hit home for me. And so I want to challenge you in this way, but I want to first make sure you understand what I am not about to say. I am not about to come at you like a spiritual coach saying, buck up, ladies, let's go. Throw some weight on it. I am not speaking to you as someone who is detached from pain or suffering. I have suffered before. I will suffer again. I have had loss before and I will have loss again. I am not coming to you with a heavy hand telling you that you better get over that hard thing in your life. Okay? Not what I'm about to say. But what I want us to see and be cautioned by in Jacob's response here is that the crisis of your hour or the chronic disappointment or the chronic burden of your life does not nullify the promises of God. The unraveling of your plans, that person that you so desire freedom for, that person that you just want healing for, that hardship, that suffering, that loneliness, ladies, it does not change the promises of God. So rather than allow your hurt or your lack, push God out to the margins, ladies. Put him right in the middle of your situation. Bring God back from the margins and right in the middle, right in the epicenter of your struggle, whether it is like short-term and new and and intense or whether it is lifelong and you are stuck. Bring him right in the middle and let God and his promises be the lens in which you look at the hard things in your life. Be cautioned by Jacob here. When things were unraveling, when he couldn't control his family, when he couldn't remember the promises of God, he talked like there was no God, like there was no covenant, like there was no promise. Do not be like him in that way but bring God front and center and then begin your healing. Then begin your processing. Then begin your process of moving forward in faith. Chapter 35 starts with God says to Jacob. And that's a big deal. Because what I just challenged you with, ladies, if you can't do that, I mean, Say that you can't. Say that you can't muster up the faith. Say that you are still up to your neck in doubt or bitterness. What is our hope from this? God comes to Jacob on the heels of Jacob's unbelief. Here is Jacob with no faith to speak of. And God comes to him and speaks to him again. He says, arise, go. Do you guys see that double verb? This is when one of you excitedly raises your hand and says, Rebecca, is that like Jonah? And I would say, exactly. 
Do you remember last spring when we found Jonah on the heels of unbelief and God comes to him again and gives him a double verb? Arise, go. It's like you say, come on, come on. Up, up, move forward in faith. Guys, this is good news for us that even when we have no faith to speak of, God initiates with us. He comes to us. And I love Jacob's response. Here's where we can be Camp Jacob again. Jacob's response now to God is repentance. Did you notice that? That is the specific response he has to the grace and the forbearance and the mercy of God. It says that he acknowledged the foreign gods among him and his family. Do you guys think about where these idols might have come from? Where these foreign gods came from? I mean, it should confuse us. Why would our patriarch, one of the fathers of our faith, have idols in his tent? And I don't know this for sure, but I think it's from Rachel. Do you remember the scene where they're fleeing from Laban and Laban realizes that some of his household idols have gone missing and who took them? Rachel. Perhaps they have been with the people of Jacob this whole time. And if that is so, then I really understand why repentance can be so hard for me sometimes. I know the theory that I should be repenting. I know I should be confessing. I, I feel the urge, like when God has been kind, when God has initiated with me, okay, I'm gonna change. But I often don't see what I need to repent of because it has been with me for so long. The sin has just been part of me for years. The bad habit, the sharp tongue, that one person that I just don't have grace for, that one or 100 people that I just think I'm better than. Guys, it's just been part of me for so long that I don't even know it's there anymore. It's just part of my family. When God comes to us and blows us away with this grace and this mercy, worship him by repenting. Get rid of those household gods, those things that you keep around to supplement the power of God Almighty and bury them, kill them. Colossians 3, 5 says, therefore put to death, bury them under the oak, what belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which is idolatry. Jacob, after repentance, is now ready to lead his family again. And it reminds us of the Jacob who led his family after he wrestled with God through the night. He may have failed greatly at Shechem, but because of God's mercy, Jacob gets another chance to be strong and courageous. This is a good day. What a compelling way to lead. What an encouragement for us that the way we can lead the people around us starts with repentance. Specific repentance. Rid ourselves of the idols. Ladies, don't leave this talk without knowing specifically how you can apply it. What is that idol? that has been in your home, in your heart, in your way of thinking for far too long? What is that little thing that matters more to you than God? What is that little thing that when you feel it maybe starts slipping through your fingers, you go crazy, you get real angry, you get hot-tempered, you get real moody. What is that thing that you keep around that could really hurt the people you love? that could really hurt you as it just keeps you comfortable. It keeps you almost like padded from needing to rely fully 
on God. Acknowledge the four gods among you. And then secondly, maybe what we can hear from this, let's not delay in Shechem. Don't set up camp in a godless situation, ladies. You ever think about what Shechem might have looked like? Or like Sodom? Like, do you think they like look dark and scary? Remember that scene in Lion King when, let's see, I messed up these names. I kept calling them Aslan on Sunday night. Okay, remember when Simba and Mufasa are sitting there and they're getting the tour of the land and little Simba says, what's that dark shadowy place over there? And Mufasa says, you must never go there, Simba. That is beyond our borders, right? Do you think Shechem looked like the elephant graveyard? No. Do you think Sodom looked evil? Do you think there was like a warning sign that said evil land, compromise, hardship coming? No. If anything, I think it had a nice big sign that said comfort. Welcome to comfort. Ladies, how did this start? Jacob tarried. He stayed in Shechem when he was invited by God to go back to Bethel, the place where he had been blessed by God, the place he had experienced him. It is so easy to fall short of Bethel. It is so easy to stay where we're comfortable or where we are prosperous. But often that is a place that will lead to our destruction or lead to pain for the people closest to us. Don't fall short of Bethel. Don't delay in Shechem. So here's our good news this week, guys. Hard text full of good news. God is really patient with our unbelief. God is really patient with our doubt. One of my favorite things so far in this study is to see that God is not rigid in giving his promises. So when did God first come to Abraham with promises? Chapter 12, right? Three chapters later, chapter 15, God comes to Abraham, re-delivers the same promises. Was that it? Was Abraham on his own? Better remember these, better have a strong enough faith. Nope, we get to chapter 22. He does it again. He gives him the same promises again. And that is what we saw him do with Jacob. I mean, for those of us who love to be time efficient, we're like, why is he naming him Israel again? This is wasting time, right? Isn't it good news for us? that God was coming to Jacob and reminding him of his promises again. Hey, you're not Jacob. You are not deceiver. No matter what your sons did, no matter what generational sin you have passed on, you are not deceiver. You are Israel. I will contend for you. And he delivers them the promises of Abraham again. And you guys were invited to look at the promises of Abraham and given to Jacob. Look at the specifics of them. We see land and we see people and specifically we see a reminder that a king will come from Jacob's line. God is not rigid in giving his promises. He is gracious and he reminds us over and over and over again. And he reminds us of our identity, but guys, culture will give you identity. Culture will tell you plenty about yourself. But when our identity is tethered to the identity of God, there's actual significance. When we understand who we are because of how it is tethered to who God is, then significant changes will happen in our life. So you are loved and you are treasured and you are precious and you are a daughter of God. 
And that tells us so much more about God than it does about us and our self-esteem. The story of redemption is continuing as we see these promises as a cue that the thread of redemption is moving along in Genesis. The story ends in this beautiful little way. After he has delivered promises and a reminder of identity to Jacob, it says, then God went up. What a beautiful reminder that eventually the offspring of Jacob, the king of kings, would come down, would condescend his throne so that you and I would grab hold of his promises so that you and I would find a new identity and a new purpose because he is God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being a holy and perfect father. Thank you for being a father to the fatherless. Thank you for being the just judge to the victims. Lord, you will make all things right. And we know that will not happen fully until glory. But until then, Lord, would you help us to take comfort in your purity and your holiness. Thank you, Lord, that while we do not see how you respond to Dinah, we can remember how you responded to Hagar just a couple weeks ago, that you saw the woman that no one else saw, that you described yourself as Elroy, the God who sees. So Lord, we thank you for who you are. We pray that today you would help us repent of idols and that you would take our faith and that you would grow it. So in your name we pray, amen.